We're diving into how the Texas Rangers spent their way to success and are being handsomely rewarded for it. Plus, we'll hear from flag football player and NFL ambassador Diana Flores, who is at the forefront of the movement to grow that sport. It's Monday, October 30th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The Rangers have spent their way to the World Series ahead of schedule. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports Newsletter co-author Eric Fisher. Welcome, Eric. Hello. Great to have you. So you've been, um, you, you spoke to Rangers Executive Vice President of Business Operations, Rob Matwick, about what this franchise has been doing, how they got to this point. Um, what, what did you learn? Well, really what I learned and and what we've seen as well is that they really kind of broke the mold that we, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a pretty clear model of having a elongated analytics driven path to rebuilding and whether it be the Houston Astros, the Chicago Cubs, uh, now what the Baltimore Orioles are trying to do, other teams, you know, that there's been sort of this pathway that you sort of build through the draft, get a homegrown base of talent and, and do this in a very sort of steady, methodical fashion. And there was the start of that with the Rangers, that they do have a lot of homegrown talent. Uh, but then they really supplemented that with a a, a big influx of free agent talent and you look at the literally hundreds of millions of dollars that they've committed in Corey Seager, Marcus Semien, Jacob deGrom obviously now hurt, uh, but you know what they did at the trade deadline this year to bring in Max Scherzer and Jordan Montgomery, that this is a team that historically has had a lot of bad luck and sort of underspent their market relative to the size of Dallas-Fort Worth as a medium market. This is a team that sort of put the big boy pants on and, and really is now behaving like a big market franchise and spending like a big market franchise. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's become the alternative model uh, because yeah, the Cubs, you know, won the world series, just slowly building up their, their young talent. Astros did the same thing. Yeah. All the teams you mentioned, the Royals are sort of another team that's been trying to do this, but not getting there. And then there are teams like the Mets and Padres and the Rangers who are saying, you know, sure, we've got some young talent, but we don't want to wait three, four years before we're even competitive, uh, which is the, t- the the cycle that you have to live through if you are doing the slow buildup. And then it doesn't always work. You know, the Royals, for example, the Tigers, you know, could be sort of good next year, but it's taken a while to get even yeah, to that point. Yeah, that's another one that the many years in development. Yeah, and great, because um, it doesn't always work. You have to hit on a lot of prospects. Things really have to go right. It has to go right regardless. I mean, the, the Rangers signed Semyon and Seeger uh, the year before. Um, it didn't, you know, it, it it took a year to to kind of for the cake to bake, but uh, but now it's baked. Now they're in the World Series. Yeah, 94 losses were the first year of them in Texas. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, they are, they're showing that spending works too, you know, it doesn't work every single time, but, but you can, uh, accelerate the, the rebuild or the, the growth to, you know, the, the ascension, you can get there faster if, if you pour some gasoline in the tank. No doubt. And and some important factors really timed up well and lined up well for the Rangers that they opened up their new stadium Globe Life Field in 2020. And that first year was very difficult because of the pandemic and not having any fans during the regular season. Uh, but they had the new stadium and, and after that, the revenues that come with it. Uh, but we're also into this lucrative new era 
for Major League Baseball as well, that there was a whole lot of new national level money coming in through a bunch of new sponsorships, new media rights contracts, uh, the sale of the BAMTech unit to Disney, um, lots of additional money coming in at the national level as well. And so, um, you know, good for Rangers fans. The club made this, you know, made the assessment that, hey, we've got new local money coming in, new national money coming in. Let's pour it into the team and get going now in the manner you described. Right. And it wasn't just like a, a one off thing where, you know, they had that massive offseason two, two years ago where they signed Semyon and Seeger, but then they kept going. Even after a losing season, they say, okay, we lost that year. All right. Add DeGrom, add Ivaldi, you know, trade for Montgomery and Scherzer, John Gray's in there too. Yeah, there's like even, you can keep going. But, um, but yeah, they they doubled down on the strategy. They're being rewarded for it too. I saw their attendance is up twenty percent this year, which you know, winning will do that sometimes. And and they're looking at another big bump. So they went from just a little over two million to two five, and now next year looking at two eight two nine. Three million is going to be a little tough. That's sort of a stretch goal, but it's only a forty thousand seat stadium. So if they literally sell out every game, they're capped at a little over three point two. Um, but you could certainly see 2-9 getting into the mix, particularly if they get off to a good start. Uh, but there's another important uh, factor in the mix here that in addition to having at least a pennant winning team and potentially a title winning team is the Rangers will be the host club for next year's all-star game, which is also a big sales uh, lure for many teams when they host the all-star game that all-star game tickets come with a full season package and those kind of offers. Uh, so they've got that at their disposal as well. So the really good team, brand new stadium and an all-star game coming. You put those things together and a lot of things are looking up for the Rangers. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else worth highlighting from your conversation with Rob Matwick? Yeah. Uh- it's also important to recognize that they've got an interesting thing going on with the Cowboys that um, part of what has made life difficult historically for the Rangers operating in that market is that, you know, they're talking about the Dallas Cowboys, one of the most popular teams literally in the entire world. And they're sort of the 800 pound gorilla in that market. Uh, uh, but they've really got a good, the Rangers and the Cowboys actually really have a very good operating relationship. They share parking, share best practices when it's appropriate. And there's a, there's a real sort of, uh, cooperative spirit going on there. And in fact, they're working together on trying to get the world cup final there. And there is a plan at play to actually have the game at AT AT&T Stadium, but some other events at the Rangers current stadium and the old stadium across the street. And so there's, there's a, there's a vibe there between those two teams that doesn't necessarily exist in a lot of other markets. You see it in Philadelphia among most of the teams there, handful of other markets. But there's there's something really unique in the way that the Rangers and the Cowboys work together. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Another way that Texas is standing out this postseason is through the menu available at Globe Life Field during the World Series. If you have some cash to spare after paying for your ticket, which for game one ranged from around $450 for standing room spots up to around $11,500 from behind the plate, you can spend $250 on a set of three two-foot sandwiches. That comes out to just under $42 per foot of sandwich, which is still a lot, and does not include any health complications that come from actually eating this stuff. Your first 24-inch sandwich is the three-strike lobster roll, which includes lobster and beef tenderloin on a lobster red bun. The second is the boomstick burger, which is a two-foot burger covered in nacho cheese, chili, jalapenos, and onion rings. And hopefully you like those toppings because it's a similar set on the boomstick hot dog, which is those things on, you guessed it, a two-foot hot dog. 
If ordering all that at the same time sounds a little much for you, you can go for the Heim Hammer, a $99 taco platter named after Rangers catcher Jonah Heim. The hammer part is a giant beef shank that is carved into the meal. I would say this is all absurdly excessive, but hey, it's Texas, it's the World Series, go crazy. And speaking of the World Series, today is a true sports equinox. We have World Series Game 3, which will be the first World Series game in Arizona since the Diamondbacks' epic walk-off Game 7 World Series win over the Yankees in 2001. That starts at 8.03 Eastern, 5.03 Pacific. 12 minutes later is the start of Monday Night Football, with the Las Vegas Raiders headed to Detroit to take on the Lions. We have two MLS playoff games, with Orlando playing Nashville and Seattle taking on Dallas. We also have 11 NBA games and 9 NHL games. The NBA opened its season with its best three-night average since 2017, with an average of 2.6 million viewers tuning into TNT and ESPN. That's despite opening night actually being down 16% from last year. Teams like the Suns and Bucks, which both added superstars, helped boost the ratings. But the real driver was the debut of Victor Wembanyama on Wednesday against the Mavericks, which averaged 3 million viewers and peaked at 3.9 million. That doesn't count people like me who watch the highlights from his games on YouTube. Wemby is still just 19 and just starting to figure out the league, but it's already pretty clear that he is going to be a unique force in the NBA on and off the court. The NBA-Europe connection has mostly been associated with Eastern Europe, but Wembanyama, who's from France, is going to create a lot of Spurs fans, and he presents a huge opportunity in Western Europe. It'll be fascinating to see how the NBA takes advantage of that. Up next, I spoke to the quarterback of the women's Mexican national flag football team and NFL global ambassador Diana Flores. Flores is at the nexus of the NFL's major growth initiatives, namely female fans and players, flag football, and international fans, including in Mexico, where the league has played five times in front of massive crowds. Our conversation is coming up right after this. Very excited to be joined now by Diana Flores, quarterback for the Mexican national flag football team and global ambassador for the NFL. Welcome, Diana. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, great. so great to have you. So, um, first, just what got you into flag football? Oh, I started at the age of eight years old in Mexico City, and pretty much I started because of my dad. My dad used to play tackle football while in high school and college a little bit, so he was the one that brought me into this football world. Mm-hmm. And uh, how big is the the flag football world um, in Mexico? Well, right now, not only in Mexico, but around the world, flag football is considered one of the fastest growing sports by the IOC. We have around 20 million people playing this sport in more than 100 countries. Just in Mexico for the past two years, we have increased 100,000 new players, which is crazy. So it's super exciting to see um, how big the sport is getting and the new opportunities for the next generations. Yeah. And and so is it mostly on the youth level where it's, you know, people getting in young? Yes, actually, flag football is a very um, dynamic sport, which means that it is inclusive. It is fun to play, fun to watch what which allows um, different kind of players to practice the sport. We have players since five, six years old playing the sport in the COVID teams, even to adults from 30 and up. So it is just super exciting to see how versatile the sport is and all the, as I said, all the opportunities that it gives people to have fun on the field. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we've certainly been noticing that the NFL has been uh, 
pushing flag football pretty hard. You know, the pro ball, the pro bowl is now flag football. Um, you know, they, they worked hard to get it into the Olympics. Um, uh, why do you think the, the NFL is, is doing that? Well, first, um, it is super exciting, as you said, that the NFL is pushing forward the sport and making it grow worldwide. Uh, one of the first reasons I could say it is, as I said, an opportunity for the next generations to find themselves on the field and just um, allow themselves to have fun in a safe, in a creative, in a very exciting way. Uh, so that's one of the main reasons. And the other, it is the perfect way uh to engage more audience and more people and more fans on, of football. As I said, flag football is easy to play, it's easy to watch, it's easy to understand, and it is like the first step uh, to get into this football world and get to understand like the full game and everything. So I can tell you, I can say that flag football and football are very close to each other. They have this um, special connection between them and to me, it is just the best way and best opportunity that our future athletes have to develop themselves. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you how, how similar flag football and tackle football are. So it, it sounds like they're close enough that, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of crossover. And you if you play one, you, you feel a connection to the other. Yes. So um, if, I, if I had to describe flag football, I could say it is like... It has the best of football, but in a more condensed uh, style. So, flat football is faster. It is played on a five-on-five in a 50-yard field, which means that it is a smaller field, and it is about speed, agility. Um, So, it allows players to be more creative on the field and develop different kind of skills. It is a non-contact sport, which uh, pushes athletes to have a more control on themselves and be to develop different athletic skills i could say so the rules are pretty much similar we don't have kicking flat football it's oh it is only like plays and throwing and runs um touchdowns they are six points each we have one or two conversion points and yeah pretty much similar as football people don't necessarily think of of football as a space where women have any real on-field community to go to what's the flag football scene like with that well first um for me it is amazing to see how big the sport is getting right now and the platform that we have right now because women we have been in this football world for a very very long time so the fact that we are now being noticed and we are having recognition and just these platforms to develop at the highest levels it is amazing i can tell you that uh, actually women are the ones that have been pushing flappable forward to for flappable to be what it is right now um it are women in the United States, in Mexico, or in other parts of the world. We have embraced this sport as ours since this is the best way we have, the I don't know, like the best way we have to connect with the sport we love. So um, for me, women have always been and are the ones that are pushing this sport forward. And I cannot wait to see where the future generations are going to get. 
Yeah, absolutely. And would you say it's mostly a, a North American phenomenon right now, or, or do you see it, you know, growing in in South America and Europe and other spots? It is everywhere. <laughs> so it is in North America, of course. Um, the, the sport has been getting sanctioned in different sports. I think right now in the United States are nine uh, states who have flag football as a sanctioned sport. In Mexico, we have a lot of colleges that right now are giving scholarships uh, to girls in order for them to be able to keep developing as athletes on the field, but also as professionals. So opening new opportunities. In South America, countries as Panama, Colombia, Brazil, the sport is growing so fast in there, but also in other parts of the world as Italy, Germany, Spain, even Thailand, Egypt, Morocco. So it is getting everywhere. This this movement is real and flat football is here to, to stay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that global growth, uh, what's your reaction to flag football getting added to the 2028 Olympics? I cannot be more happy and excited for that. I mean, flag football being an Olympic sport, it's a dream come true <laughs> to me uh, as an athlete, of course, playing this sport for the past 19 years, but also for all the flag football community worldwide. That's the ultimate goal, I can say, for every athlete to represent your country at the highest stage. So it's just a dream come true. And I am so grateful uh, for every. Everybody that made this possible through um, football players around the world, the NFL, IFAF, the IOC that trusted in this sport and the future. And I was so excited for what this means for the sport. It means more opportunities. It means uh, to allow the next generations to dream bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk to me a little bit about your work as a global ambassador for the NFL. What do you do in, in that realm? Yes, yeah, so um, I I work closely with the NFL and IFAF to keep spreading the world, to keep growing the sport worldwide, to um, grow um, acknowledge of the sport and more opportunities, as I said, for the youth uh, to develop their skills and for future opportunities on and off the field. So I just feel really grateful to be able to give back to the sport I love, not only as a player at the highest level at World Cups, but also off the field, just um, putting my part to grow the sport and be part of this Olympic journey with them uh, has been just unreal. And I feel blessed to have the opportunity to contribute to this bigger goal. Mm -hmm. And obviously being in the Olympics is a huge milestone. Is there anything, is there any other way you would like to see the sport grow? Yes. um, To me, the next steps for the sport, I, I, I would love to see flag football as a sanctioned sport in more states, mainly in the United States, because I feel that that will help to grow the sport, uh, coming from high school students to college students and just give them opportunities to um, achieve their goals as athletes, but also as persons, as professionists, more opportunities, not only in the States, but also um, in more countries, Mexico, in Europe. I feel that's the next big step that this sport has to achieve. And also hopefully uh, this dream of 
um, getting flexible as a professional sport will come true. So I'm really looking forward and hoping that uh, will come true in the next few years. Uh, Diana Flores, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today on your favorite podcast app and drop us a review while you're there. Let us know who you'd like to hear from on the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.